0: Jesus feeds us twice on Sunday mornings. He does it first through his word, and we feast on the truth here, the bread of life. And then he does it at his table. So this is our chance to give ourselves to thinking on, hearing, believing, responding to the truth of scripture together. Let's pray before we do that. Father, visit us as we humble ourselves to sit And to hear truth, would you allow it to take root in our hearts in a way that is helpful and formative, that we are convinced about the truth that is found here and we're changed by it? Would you also bind the hearts of this small church together around this truth, that we might be closer having experienced hearing the word together? Those are the desires of our heart. I pray that you would meet them this morning, hear an answer. Amen. All right, here's what we're going for in our text of scripture today. What does it look like for a church, a family like this, to give itself to lifelong, costly, public repentance together? That's going to be our big idea. Let me pull these words up again from last week, gospel safety time. We said last week that we want these three words to undergird everything about the life and mission of Seven Mile Road. Last week we talked at length about the first two, gospel, which is grace for sinners or really good news for really bad people because of Jesus. We said that the gospel is our oxygen, and we're learning to breathe it together. We want to become a gospel-fluent people. Then we talked about safety, and the text really opened this up for us. What if we became a church where nobody was under the microscope, nobody was on probation, nobody was performing, nobody was having to prove themselves to somebody, that we could just breathe together, safe, This week, this text is really going to help us with this time word, this last phrase, time. Okay, almost all of you are Americans. Almost all of you are Americans. Among other things, this means that you expect and you want everything in your life to happen super, wicked, fast. Who's an American? And that's your basic pace. You could give me all the examples. I just jotted down a few. So speed dating. Have you seen this? There's these cubicle things, and they give you an hour, and you meet six different people. And at the end, you're supposed to know, after a seven-minute conversation, he's the one. She's the one. That was fast. All right, pause. This does this sometimes. Let me try and fix this for you. You can think of other ways in your life that you are acquiring speed. See how frustrated you are that that took me more than two seconds to fix that? You're like, what is this guy doing? He's not from America. How about weight loss? 15 pounds in 15 days. I don't know how you do that, but they promised that. How about education? I saw an online 10-month MBA. I don't even care if I'm learning or not. I just want the piece of paper fast. Have you seen the commercials for Rocket Mortgage? I don't even know if this is healthy and safe that you can just pick up your phone and go into $600,000 of debt. But you can do that on your phone in whatever they promise, less than 60 seconds. This is your basic pace. The only thing you know about time is fast. The problem is, that we bring that expectation of time into the life of this community and we want to fix everything spiritually in our lives like Rocket Mortgage. We want it fast. Cruz, just preach me the right sermon or just point me to the right book or just have the right conversation with me one time. Just tweet the tweet, 160 characters and I'll retweet it and everything will be fine and it will be fine fast. Here's my loving pastoral word to you. No, it won't. Change takes time. Time. That truth there has hundreds of implications for our life together. One is that we need to give ourselves to each other for the long haul. Way too many people have been here and then ejected before The work of the Spirit could actually take root in their lives. They just didn't give it enough time. Another implication is that we have to learn to be patient with each other. We have to do that. There cannot be a rush in our relationships or in the life of our church. We say there's no stopwatches here and people trying to see how quick it happened. There's also a third implication to this. This is the one that's going to come clear to you in our text, and that is that all of us should be coming to deeper, newer, clearer repentances over time, over time. Okay, let's talk about that. Praise God for the doctrine of new birth. This is this moment or this season or this specific time when we realize, whoa, I have come alive in a way that I was not alive before this. Something has changed in me. I I am new. I am singing things with eyes I didn't have before. I have a heart for God that's beating, that was not beating like this before. Some of you may know the exact date when that change happened in your heart. You've got it written in the margin of your Bible. I have a birthday. April 30th, 1973, and then I have a second birthday, and here's the exact day when I was born again by God's grace. Awesome. That's fine. For some of us, we don't know, like, the day. We just know there was this season, this semester, this month, this year. There was this time when I started here, and I ended here, and I was a brand new person. That happened once. Whoosh, like that. Okay, okay beautiful. You should have believed. You should have been baptized. You should have been able to say to somebody, I have come to Jesus. I've seen my sin for what it is, and I've been changed, and I had a come to Jesus Christ this moment, and I'm in on the gospel and the family of God. Great. What we don't do is then say, that's kind of it, and now I'm going to go through the motions in the rest of this life because I got in that one time back there. That's not how the Christian life works. Yes, once saved and always saved, but also what? Always being saved. Repentance is not a door that you walk through one time. It's a door that we walk through together over and over again. This means that we're supposed to have crisis moments repeatedly in our walk with God. When we see more crisis Clearly, God is holier than I even thought. I am more sinful and broken than I even realized. And I need to come to Jesus again. Christian life is not one come to Jesus moment, but many come to Jesus moments over time. I love how my man Ajay says it. He's planting Seven Mile Road down in Philly. When he's trying to explain to people the work that God did in his life through you, in the five years that they were with us. This is how he says it. I was born again, again. I was born again, again. What does he mean by that? He's not saying that irreverently. If you know a J, Jay, there's nothing that he does irreverently. He's saying, yes, I was born again and brought into the kingdom of God, but then there was another season of deeper and clearer wakefulness and repentance that happened in my life, and it was sweet, and it changed me again. In the horizon of my life, there's change and change and change. Okay, that's what we're about to see in these words from Scripture. My job is to say them in a way that you understand them and take them from here. We're going to see some folks who had already believed the gospel, believing again in newer and deeper ways. All right, I'm going to put text of scripture up on the screen so that you see that what we're preaching comes from these words. Here's our context. Like Jesus before them, the apostles walked in beautiful, strong power that included setting people free from spirits that had oppressed them in their life. Jesus came to break, to crush the work of, of Satan in the world and in our lives. And because his apostles had his authority, they worked and walked in that same kind of power. They were empowered to do the same thing. So Luke, medical doctor, matter-of-factly, gives us this sentence. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin got carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. All right, Paul was a tent maker. Matt Bleeker and Clint were in here yesterday doing some carpentry work and they were sweating. He was a tent maker who was working with tents with his hands and he had a sweat rag or a handkerchief that he would wipe his sweat off with and he wore an apron where he would keep his tools. Luke tells us that some folks were coming and they were grabbing that sweat rag when he was done working or pilfering his apron and taking this piece of material and just laying it on the chest of people who were oppressed and they were being set free from that power. In other words, this is intense power here. This is four degrees of power from Jesus to Paul to his sweat rag or apron to the person, and still they're being set free. This is like when your kids are going wild and dad's not quite home yet, but he sends a text and he says, tell the boys I'm 10 minutes away. What happens when mom shows the boys that text message? All of a sudden there's immediate reform, even though the text was sent from six miles away. What is that? That's the power and the authority of dad about to arrive on the scene. This is the power of Jesus. Four degrees of separation, but it's still strong. You feel that? Okay, now juxtapose that with the next verse that Jen read to us. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And they said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. That was their new magic spell. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. Okay, do you feel this? Um, Ephesus was the mystical, magical voodoo capital of the Roman Empire. Um, Magic, spells, incantation marked their culture like Dunkin' Donuts and the Patriots and sexual sin marks your culture. This is just what they were about. And so there was all kinds of folks who plied this trade of exorcism. Here we got this boy band, seven of them. That's that's how I understand this, a boy band of exorcists. And they had seen sweat rags taken off of Paul connected to Jesus, setting people free. And they said, if an apron can do that, Let's add Jesus' name into our incantations and our spells. See the quote in there? That's their magic spell. We'll just add Jesus to that, and we will be the boy band of the decade as far as exorcisms go. We will be the kings of Ephesus. Reality show is coming. They syncretize Jesus with their magic. That's what I'm I'm trying to make clear to you. I can have Jesus' name on my lips. I can have Jesus' power in my hands, but my life does not need to belong to Jesus. That's the lie that they're believing right here. How does it go for this boy band of exorcists? The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them. So that they fled out of that house naked and wounded, okay, only Roy and my dad are doing what you're supposed Tracy doing what you 're supposed to do when you read this you're supposed to chuckle. this is funny, no They were supposed to overpower the spirit, seven against one, and one of them overpowered them, and i 'm just imagining a boy band really beat up bad and half naked running through the streets, shrieking you 're supposed to laugh here this is comic relief from Luke so that we can breathe because things are about to get intense, but this is, in other words, it's so ridiculous to think that you can take the name of Christ and attach it to your syncretisms and get away with it. Please. I don't know if you had the awful experience of seeing Borat on a flight. I hope that you didn't. There are some things that you see that you can't unsee in life. You know how that works? But if you saw Borat fighting with his uncle in that hotel room, did I just ruin your morning? Yes. That's this right here. And you're laughing, and that was a comedy because this is kind of funny that this would go down. How ridiculous. What were they thinking? But then Luke takes a very sharp left turn and he switches gears with you. And now he wants you to stop laughing. And he gives us this sentence. This became known To all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was no longer trifled with. It was magnified or it was extolled. In other words, everybody who saw this realized, if I am playing around with my relationship to this Jesus, with my commitment to him and my devotion to him, that is a dangerous place to be. And a holy fear descends on the city. Let's talk about this word fear for a second. So you know that there is a kind of fear over here that the scriptures compel you to put away. But you don't need to be scared like that anymore. Because of Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection, we are forgiven of all of our sin. We are fully and finally justified before God. All the wrath of God that was due to us has been removed. God is only disposed toward us when we believe in mercy. God has become our Father. We have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. The gospel sets us free from fear. We should live fearless. Yes. But then there's another kind of fear that is good and necessary. This is the fear that recognizes God for who he is. This is what we would call the sober reverence that comes to our hearts to understand, wait a minute, Jesus will brook no rivals. Jesus and his name and his gospel and his people are not to be trifled trifled with. Either we are all in on our love for and obedience to Christ, or we're dead. That is a holy fear. Without that fear, no one is ever saved, ever. We fly to the cross of Christ, to Jesus, because we see his beauty and his goodness and his grace and his love with new eyes. But in that movement, you are also flying from the reality and the dangers of hell that you have come to see are yours. Both of those are a part of coming to Jesus. That's what these Ephesians feel right here. They see this happen and they realize, wait a minute, you can use Jesus' name, you can attach Jesus' name to your life and not really have Jesus that conviction rolls through this city. People are stopped in their tracks and they begin to ask, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that true about me? Is that true about me? And then something beautiful happens in response. And this is the heart of our sermon. This became known. I gave you that, sorry. Here it is. Also, Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. Okay, let's work these words together. Who are now believers, who were now believers, is another way to say many of those who were already believers. They had already heard the gospel, believed it, been baptized. Paul was in Ephesus for two or three years. So time horizon here, these people had been Christians for maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years. You feel the time horizon in this verse? Yes, if they died on this day, paradise with Jesus. Nothing more to prove to earn their salvation. No more merits to add to their treasury. They were in the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean that they were done repenting. I have a friend who loves Greek, and he told me that this phrase, people love Greek, isn't that weird? This phrase here is in something called the perfect tense, which means it's a past event with ongoing implications and effects. In other words, these people, because they had believed the gospel, were realizing over time, I need to continue to believe the gospel in deeper ways. I have more to repent of. There is still syncretism and sin and compromise in my heart and in my life. There are still places where I think I can hold on to Jesus and I can hold on to the old way of living. They see it. And what do they do? They move they move. Came forward is the verb that defines this whole passage. It's the key activity. They came forward. In other words, they're not static in their Christian life. There's new circumstances and new providences and new insights that is bringing them to new repentances. This is a come to Jesus moment all over again. That's the big verb, movement over time. And then Luke gives you the three little verbs. Let's look at them together. The first one is confessing. That word means to profess or to make open a vowel. We call this walking in the light together. In public, with everyone watching, some of these folks raise their hands and they say, I am not unlike Siva's sons. I'm just like them. I've done what they did before. I've actually been doing that for a while. I've got Jesus' name on my lips, and I've got my cross tattoo on my bicep, and I've got my name engraved on my ESV Bible, and i got a fish bumper sticker on my car. Jesus' name is right near me. I use it a lot. But I am not loving or obeying Jesus the way that I'm called to. I'm just like them. We were at an 829 deal, and this older, beautiful, holy pastor named Ray Ortland was speaking, and he was talking to the men about using their wives sexually just for pleasure for themselves and the great sin that that is instead of fostering a one-flesh relationship where there is giving and receiving. And the 65-year-old man who was speaking pauses, And he says to the whole crowd of men, I've done that before. I've done that before. That's this verb right here. Confessing. I'm broken and sinful and there's still sin in my life. And I need Jesus all over again. You feel that? Next one. Divulging their practices. Divulge means to declare or to set forth. Practices here would have been their magic spells, their, their voodoo, their incantations. Let me read you a couple of translations of this verse that make it a little clearer. Many believers openly admitted their involvement with magical spells and told all the details. How about this? Many of those who had believed now came out of the closet and made a clean break with their secret sorceries. You guys feel that? In other words, once you do this, that's real repentance because there's no going back. Anybody remember the Fox special with Val Valentino breaking the magician's code? Late 90s, Fox? Oh man, you weren't watching TV back then. Okay. Val Valentino was this sleazy magician who went on Fox in back-to-back-to-back-to-back episodes and told all the secrets that magicians use to fake you out. The magician community in the United States wanted to kill Val Valentino. What are you doing? You're not allowed to go tell them what we're doing with the cards and the, cutting the girl in half. and the, You can't give our secrets up to that, cut all the power out of what we're doing. They were mad at Val Valentino. You don't shake. Share that information with someone unless you're done with that life. Feel that? So like if I'm playing ball with somebody and I see that they're covering me, I don't call a timeout and say, hey, let me just show you all this stuff I'm going to do, right? I'm going to put my foot here. I'm going to pivot left. When I go left, you're going to go left. I'm going to come right back to the other side. Boom. And the next time we come down, you're going to think I'm going left, and I'm going to fake left and right, and then I'm going to swoop under the other direction. And then sometimes I'll pin you here. Do I give them all that information? No, I just go out and score 30 in the game. That's how that works. Why would I divulge the secrets of my power? Only if I want to lose. Only if winning has not become important anymore. That is what is going on right here. I need you to feel the intensity of this. Once they divulge their practices, they're saying, it's Jesus or I die. I've got nothing left in my pocket. In other words, this was a deeper, clearer repentance, goodbye to their old life than they had come to before. They are growing holier over time, and at greater cost over time. Lifelong costly repentance. Let's talk about that. It jumps out at you in this verse. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and they found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Here's our third verb. They come burning. I like this. They come setting things on fire. These books represent what? The connection to their old life. They've got Jesus, but they still got their magic. Not anymore. They literally set those books on fire. This is 55 A.D., There's no PDF backups. There's no Dropbox. There's no cloud. You set these things on fire. They're gone forever. Uh, Feel the cost with me in here. You guys know that I came to faith in a somewhat crazy, somewhat heretical, somewhat abusive church culture but I have all these beautiful affections for the church that we grew up in too because I came to faith in Jesus and learned so many beautiful things there. One night, mid-80s youth group night was bonfire night. We must have been working through this or a similar text of scripture because they got this big old can and they put it behind the church in the uh, parking lot back there. And everybody was told, if you're in on Jesus, you bring your stuff that's dishonoring to Jesus and we're setting it on fire. I can still smell those fumes. I saw some ACDC tapes go in there and some kiss cassettes and a couple of Bart Simpson T-shirts and some Max Headroom stickers and Cosmo magazines and whatever else you would have thrown away if you were 16 in, in 1987. I can still see Kurt Bailey with the kerosene soaking it and getting a Zippo out and lighting that thing on fire. You laugh at that? Here's what this text is trying to say to you. If that has never happened in your life, something is wrong. If you have never seen the holiness and the power of Jesus Christ and the sinfulness of you and said, whatever needs to go is going to go because I want Jesus, something is very wrong. And if that only happened one time, somewhere fuzzy back there, and this is not a rhythm in your life, something is wrong. That's what this is. It's renewed repentance. And it's costly. It's Kind of hard to do the math with these things from the first century. But this is certainly hundreds of thousands of dollars. It could be a couple of million dollars. Set on fire. I'm done with it. And not just me, but nobody else is getting suckered into this ridiculousness. I'm finished. And not just the financial cost, but you know the sinful things in your life have some good, sweet memories, right? There's some stuff attached to those seasons that you still long for. Some of these were probably family heirlooms, books that were handed down from dad to son, and mom to daughter. These spells were a safe place for them, right? At least they knew how that world worked. There was some comfort in these things. Can you feel their hearts going, can I have Jesus but not let go of these things? On this day, they realize, you can't play that game. You can't. Jesus calls us out into the waters of complete dependence on him. And last point, not in some private ceremony. See these words in here? In the sight of all. Don't miss that. Not only must our repentance be lifelong and costly, but it's got to be done in community, out loud, in front of everybody, Zippo in this hand, magic books in this hand, they went, I'm done. I'm done. Why would they go do that in public like that? They're not only saying out loud, I am bad, and I need the grace of Jesus, and I have more sin to repent of. And not only are they saying out loud, and I'm done with my old life, but they're also saying, I need you in this with me. I want you to watch me take this step so that you can be with me in the next season and the next season. They repented in the sight of all. We have made a commitment to live this way together, and it's bearing beautiful fruit for us. When we first launched smaller communities, we took seven men, seven women, and we began to train them over at Kevin's apartment in Medford. Six people living in a two-bedroom apartment. This is how I knew they were going to do fine on the mission field in Tanzania, right? Totally fine. They were living in this place. We were learning what it looks like to live like this together. So the guys left their apartment and walked across to the common area that they had. We sat in a circle around the table, and here's what we did, and I started. One by one, we took all our stuff, and we put it in the bonfire on the table, and I said, here's how I sin, and I want to be done with it, and here's how I sin, and I want to be done with it, and here's how I sin, and I want to be done with it. And I didn't have matches and paper, but that's what we did. And then Kevin went, and then Rob went, and then Matt went, and then Justin went, and then whoever was formative in the life of our church at that time, that's what we did. It had this feel right here. We looked at each other and said, we're in, we're not going back, and I need you to know about this. Our Ox track this year kicked off in the summertime. Me, Sam, Tim, Scott, Robin, Dan and Clint. We went up to Element Hotel because they give you a free hot breakfast. Unlimited pancakes. Several different kinds of syrups. Sat in a hotel room up there. Little coffee table in between us. Took two hours on a Saturday morning. You know what we did? We got out our magic books, all the sin in our life, all the syncretism. We got out our Zippo, put them on this poor coffee table. We set the thing on fire. It was intense. It was scary. Yeah, there was holy fear in that room, and we wanted in with Jesus. And we wanted the other guys to know, I want in with Jesus. Gospel community at my house, me, Jeremy, Doug, and Rob sat down in a four-man circle, took an hour and a half to say, here's how I sin, here's where I need the grace of Jesus, I'm dragging it out in front of you all. Let's set this on fire, and I need you in with me so that I don't go back. That's what this verse is. You don't just do that the day that we baptize you, you do that over and over and over and over and over again. What happens when a group of people commit to costly repentance over time in community? Check out this last verse. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. In other words, the cleansed church, the church that is constantly seeking to be reformed and pure before Jesus, that's a powerful and growing church. I want that here. Here's our question to think on. Is lifelong, costly, public repentance evident in our life together? It's very difficult for me to trot out specific illustrations because I'm not you and you're not me. You know what the magic books are in your life. You know where the syncretism is. You know the stuff that you want to hold on to but parrot the name of Jesus. When was the last time that you repented of sin? When was the last time that you saw some compromise in your heart and it actually shook you with a holy fear to say, am I just a son of Siva here playing a game? When was the last time you came to Jesus again and said, no, 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 I'm all in with you? When was the last time following Jesus actually cost you something? When was the last time that you openly and freely said to somebody in our church, in a gospel community, I'm bad, but I believe in Jesus, and I'm going all in with him, and I need you to walk with me in this. Some of us need to set some things on fire in our life. It's a simple application, but it's true. There is no joy like the joy of breaking free from the falsehoods of this world and saying, it's Jesus or I die. Because with Jesus, you live. That's the invitation of this text. Let's pray together. Father, bring to mind the places where we're playing games. Relationships, money, schedule, language. A hundred other places. And I pray that in love for each other, in love for you, we just walk them out in the broad light of day and say, there it is, and I'm done, and I need you in this with me. I pray that not one of us would just get stuck somewhere in this walk with you, but that we would be committed to each other over time. We want the sweetness of freedom that comes with Christ and Christ alone. Father, we believe that reform leads to revival. We believe that. That as we go all in with you, you sweep in here with blessing. So I pray that every one of us would be quick to say, how can I go all in with Jesus? That you would meet us in that place. That is my prayer for the life of this church. I pray that you would hear and answer.